Hello and welcome to Grace Life Tigerberg. We are a gospel-centered church family focused on reaching the unreached and making disciples. We pray this teaching will help you to grow in your relationship with Jesus and discover more of the reality of Christianity. For those of you who do not know God well, um, he's a close friend. He's an amazing uh, um, child of God who loves the Lord and uh, he's about his father's business. Um, and uh, it's been an honor and a privilege to walk a road with him and to really see him just grow in his understanding of the word, grow in his understanding of who he is as a child of God and uh, uh, overflowing from that place with God's love and ministering to God's people. Before I hand over to him, last week we kicked off uh, um, our series, our theme of just going through the um, three pillars, so to speak, of discovering Jesus, finding family, and then experiencing life. So last week we did part one of Discovering Jesus, and God will, will be doing part two of Discovering Jesus, and then next week we'll be looking at experiencing life and finding freedom and what that means for us as a church family, but also from the Word, what those things mean for us. Amen. From my side, there's a part that Etienne just mentioned that there's obviously a problem with the world. Uh, he was just identifying a problem why the world needs to discover Jesus. The problem is that the world is void of something. And he did mention or read, you read from Romans 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. And the glory of God there referred to the Spirit of God. So that means the world is void of the Spirit of God and that we needed Jesus. We needed something to come in so that we could restore that relationship, so that we could fill in that void that we have. I'm just going to touch a little bit more on that, but this is mainly really with regards to a specific uh, passage of Scripture that I picked up, which is John chapter 4. So I'm going to minister almost exclusively from the book of John chapter 4, um, just this amazing story, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, where Jesus encounters this lady. Uh, but before I go there, um, there's also one last thing that um, Etienne shared, shared right at the end. He says, the result of discovering Jesus is transformation. It's life in its fullness. So if whatever we are doing right now, like Anna shared, if we're going to go into the Bible, if we're going to minister from the front here, and ultimately if we're not pointing you to Jesus, then obviously we're not giving you the right information that, we, that you need to know. Because everything... The, uh, I think I once shared uh, some, a couple of months ago that the reason why there's even a Bible is because of the story of Jesus and not the other way around. The reason why there's even a Bible is because of the story of Jesus. So the, it's not like we are going to, to the Bible to try and, okay, yes, we go to the Bible to try and find Jesus, but the reason why the Bible was even compiled and written was because there was a story about a man that lived. And people found it worthy to record his life or to write about him because of what he had accomplished on earth. And now people went on after his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven to then expound even on the scriptures that had spoken about Jesus from the time that before, before Jesus' time up to the time he lived and even after. So that is the reason why we stand here. That is the reason why we're even doing this series, Discovering Jesus, so that we can understand what is the really the big deal about this guy called Jesus Christ. 
Why do we need to know him? So, um, like I said, I'm just going to minister from John chapter 4 exclusively. But before I go there, I had a thought in my mind uh, that just came to my mind that says it's easy. It's better, actually. It's better not to be offended than to try and get back to a place of peace after being offended. It's better not to be offended than to try and get back again to a place of peace after being offended. I'm sure you all know that once you're offended, there is no level of peace that you have because suddenly you feel like um, my offense demands justice or I'm justified. Like I am justified, so I need my offense demands some sort of justice. Somebody has to come to me and apologize. Somebody has to come to me and say all these things to make it right. So already when you're offended, it's, it's difficult for you to get to that place where you let go of that feeling or you let go of whatever it is that's messing up your mind in that moment. So how then do we not become offended? If it is better not to be offended than to try and get back to peace after being offended. So the easiest way is really to, for us to grow into the image of Christ. And I think we're going to see that even in, in many scriptures that it was difficult for Jesus to be offended. It's anything, even uh, to be offended by the people that came against him saying a whole lot of things. So the more we grow in our understanding of who Jesus is, the more we grow in our understanding of Christ in us, the easier it will become for us to not be offended at anything, even if it's things that are potentially going to hurt us. So this is just an encouragement. It was just a side note that I, I thought I'd just share this morning before I kick it off. So uh, there's a statement that I also saw that says, "What did the classmates say when they? Uh, what did the classmates say when asked why they kept walking next to the same person at school?" Anyone knows the answer to that? What did the classmates say when they were asked why they kept walking next to the same person at school? Well, they said the pastor said you should live by faith. So obviously, the next the other person was called faith. So they always. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, I know it took a little bit uh, longer for, for you to register that, but that's, that's exactly the point. Uh, I saw another statement that's cool that says humor disarms people. Uh, obviously, we started with a little bit of some heavy stuff, so uh, it's good to be in a place where we're all comfortable, we're all ready to receive, we're all, you know, just uh, experiencing that laughter. Uh, because I think laughter also adds on to the many years that we need to live. Uh, <laughs> Amen. So, just to kick it off, we're just going to read uh, from John chapter 4, starting from verse 3. I'm going to be reading this entire chapter in parts, in bits and pieces, but I'll open up with John chapter 3, chapter 4, sorry, verse 3 up to 5. It says, He left Judea and departed into Galilee. And he need, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. It was about 
the sixth hour. So if you understand the times of the Bible, when the Bible says it was about the sixth hour, it means that they used to record time from six in the morning. So the sixth hour of the day meant it was midday, 12, 12 in the afternoon. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus was tired, which is, which is again a, a, a different topic on its own, but it just, just amazes me that this, this is God himself who was willing to subject himself to human frailty. You, Jesus even got tired. Jesus even got weary from a human perspective. Jesus even got thirsty, as you will see, from a human perspective. How amazing is that, that God, in all his fullness, would subject himself to a human body. And, and, and just that, that is just a picture of humility on his own, on Jesus' part. Uh, but um, it was about the sixth hour, so that means it was noon. It was probably very hot. Um, but I like the statement that says, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued by the statement that says, but he needed to go through Samaria. If you understand the history that is there between the Jews and the Samaritans, you understand that there was no friendship that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. So the Jews considered the Samaritans um, mixed race in a way. So what actually happened is that back then, when the Babylonians came and uh, conquered Israel, they took some of the Israelites with them to the land of Babylon, but there were some Israelites that remained in Israel at that time. So what the Babylonians did is they brought their own people into Israel and they started intermarrying with the Israelites. And that's how the race called Samaritans came about. It was due to the intermarriages that were there between the Babylonians and the Israelites that were left during the time of captivity. So when the original Jews that left came back, they saw these people living in this land and already they didn't like them because they said they were no longer of pure blood. So that's where the enmity between um, the Jews and the Samaritans came about. In fact, in the time of Jesus, to be called a Samaritan, or if you were a Jew and somebody called you a Samaritan, they say that it was worse than being called a Gentile. It was, it, it was, it, it was as if somebody called you a dog to call you a Samaritan. Which is why it's interesting that Jesus felt like he needed to go through Samaria geographically. Samaria was between Judea and Galilee. So from a, from a traveling perspective, it made sense that Jesus goes through Samaria. But to the many Jews, they would actually avoid going through Samaria. It was better for them to go around so that they could just avoid being in Samaria. So that they wouldn't mix with these people. So Jesus, for some reason felt like he needed to go through Samaria. Now, if we, if we continue with this, with this passage, we read now that uh, verse, uh, verse 7, it says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. I think this is exactly what we've, what we've just mentioned. And what made it even worse was the fact that this was a woman, first of all, and Jesus was a rabbi. For a rabbi to be seen in public with a woman was obviously something that was also strange. 
let alone a Samaritan woman. That is even worse. So that's why I guess she asked the question, why would you, a Jew, even ask or dare to ask me for a drink? So obviously, by that time, there was obviously a, a bit of an awkward situation that was happening between Jesus and the woman as they were having this conversation or as they were trying to get into this conversation. So Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would have given you living waters. Now, this was the second statement or second sentence that Jesus said to the, uh, spoke to the woman. But what's already interesting from this second statement is that Jesus had already shifted his mindset from just talking about natural water he was already talking about living water in his second sentence to the woman, which, which obviously also highlights the level of mindset that Jesus always operated on. And you actually see this in Scripture. The moment you start going into Scripture and looking at the conversations that Jesus was having with people, you always notice that Jesus always used a natural situation and converted it to an eternal situation whenever he wanted to minister to somebody. And this can be a lesson that we can also learn for all of us when it comes to evangelizing to people. Sometimes we, it's, it's very weird, it's awkward. We don't know how to even start a conversation about the word. But Jesus just used the same situation. They were by water. They were talking about water. And guess what? He just changed the, the conversation from water to living water, which is eternal which is exactly something that we can also learn from Jesus to say, how do we approach people? How do we minister to people when, when we encounter them in any situation? Just use whatever is right in front of you. And then you start to minister to people from that perspective. So the way that Jesus initiates this discussion, you can notice that it's obviously intriguing. The woman by that time was already intrigued. What is this man talking about? He's talking about living water. So we read from the next um, passages of Scripture. The woman said to him, Say you have nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whosoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst. But the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of, of, a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So the living water that Jesus was talking about in this instance, he was actually referring to the Holy Spirit. And how do we know that? We know that from John chapter 7, when John actually explains this. In John chapter 7, if you read John chapter 7, um, I'm just going to go. John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of the heart, who flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those in him 
whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So that means in this instance, Jesus was already introducing the idea of the Holy Spirit to the woman. And so living water is a metaphor that Jesus used to refer to the Holy Spirit. He was talking about the, the living water, which is the Holy Spirit. And, um, and I also read from Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, just to confirm that. It says that, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon, upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. Do you notice how the woman introduces uh, response to Jesus by talking about our father Jacob and this well? Are you greater than them? Do you, do you all notice how Jesus didn't even respond to your question? Jesus did not respond to the woman's question about, are you greater than our father Jacob? Who gave us this well and his descendants. Rather, Jesus chooses to focus on the things, on the aspects of the conversation that were going to make a difference in that woman's life instead of engaging in argument. Oftentimes in our, in our lives, we find ourselves having discussions with people, and obviously sometimes they come with strong opinions about different subjects. It's very easy to be drawn into an argument. For Jesus, it was more important for Jesus to win this soul than to win the argument. We know Jesus knew almost everything about this woman. Instead, he chooses not to argue about who's, who's greater, who's not. Whose well, it is, whose, uh, whose well it is or not. But rather he chooses to focus on a subject which he knew that was going to affect the, the woman's soul instead of trying to win all these other arguments. Life will present us in general with just opportunities to argue. And we are encouraged not to argue with people, but rather to present the, world, the word in such a way that people get to understand what it is we are talking about. Because oftentimes arguments are based on the premise that I am right, you're wrong. I need to win and you need to lose. But ultimately, whether you win the argument, sometimes you realize that you won't win the soul. Which is, which, is, which is where we have to ask ourselves, what is more important, the argument or the person? So we always have to be careful, even in our, in our, in our, in our conversations with people, not to always be sucked into... The, the trap of trying to argue out things. Even if, even if you are trying to argue or trying to convince somebody about Christianity or about Jesus, don't present it in a way where you have to win. Present the, the purity of the gospel as a message. Show people where the problem is. Present the gospel in such a way where they have to think for themselves and realize that this is ultimately what they need and not everything else. So continuing on with this story, we, we're going to, I, I spoke about the problem earlier on. Remember Jesus was talking about whoever drinks of this woman will thirst again. I also asked myself the question, so what, what, what was Jesus really talking about? What is this thirst that Jesus kept on referring to? What is the thirst that Jesus kept on referring? That is the human problem. The thirst is exactly what I mentioned in the beginning, what Etienne shared last week. Romans 3, verse 23, for all have 
sinned and have shorten, and fallen short of the glory of God. It means there is a void somewhere that you need to satisfy. And Jesus was saying to this woman, if you drink of this water, you might satisfy your physical thirst. But it's not going to satisfy the actual thirst that you need, which is the spirit of God in you. And just to prove that there is something that this woman lacked that she was always looking for in different many other things. If we read the next verse, which is 15, verse 15 up to verse 17, it says, um, uh, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. So we can see from the story of this woman that she had had five husbands, and she was living with another man who was not even her husband. So that means she must have been looking for something to satisfy her. And in this instance, it was getting into all these relationships with people, but she, had never, she hadn't yet gotten into that place where she could be fully satisfied even by those relationships. That's why she kept on getting into more and more of these relationships. And guess what? Jesus knew everything about her because he had the Spirit of God in him. And he spoke to this woman, not in a condemning way, but he showed her a true picture of who she was. Not in a way that says, I condemn you, woman. You are a very sinful woman. So I am condemning you right now because you've had five husbands and you're also now shaking up with another man. That is not the way that Jesus presented this information to this woman. But Jesus presented this information in such a way that the woman herself realized, I'm talking to somebody who who knows something greater than me, and he wasn't even condemning it, in a way that she opened up to want to hear more of what this man has to say. But oftentimes, especially in our Christian circles, we often deal with many people who've got many different problems and many different issues in life. And the temptation is always to point out people's wrongs. The reality is the ministry of the entirety of the ministry of Jesus Christ was a ministry that was focused on winning the lost souls back to, back to the Father. And he encountered many people that he had done so many things. He ate with tax collectors. Tax collectors were considered the sinners of sinners because of their uh, not so reputable behavior with finances. And yet Jesus found himself eating with those people. The woman that was caught in adultery. Do you know what Jesus asked her right at the end when, people, when everybody left? He says, where are the people that wanted to stone you? Did they not condemn you? And then the woman said, they left and they, no, they did not condemn me. And then Jesus said, neither do I. And yet we find that this woman had been caught in the very act of adultery. And yet Jesus' gift to her was a gift of no condemnation. And because of the gift of no condemnation, guess what? That is what led people to repentance. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, I think it says, for it is the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. 
It is not our condemnation. It is not our pointing of the rights and the wrongs that leads people to repentance. But it is the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. And this is, this is just an encouragement, just to show you what the heart of the Father is. Jesus is not concerned about whether we're doing A, B, C, and D. Yes, he knows that some of the things that we are doing are wrong. And in many instances, what we do that is wrong affects us, not him. But he is coming to us from the perspective of, I know, where your prob- I know what your problem is. The problem is that you're void of the Spirit of God, and as long as you don't have that Spirit, you always try to find something to fill up that void. And that something could be money. That something could be relationships. That something could be anything that you can think of from a material perspective. We're always looking for the next best thing, the next best um, uh, motivational speech, the next best whatever, whatever you call it, you can fill in the blanks. But the reality is God, our creator who created us, knows that there's only one thing that is needful, only one thing that is needful, and that is the spirit of God living in men. Because that's the only thing that can satisfy us, that can have a lasting satisfaction in our lives. Amen. All right, so uh, if I read from uh, Isaiah 64, verse 6, again, this is another passage of Scripture that I was read last week. This just proves to us how, what kind of state the world is in. It says, but we, all, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, and we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. So Isaiah writes and says, we all, before we encounter Jesus, before we have the Spirit of God, the way that God sees us is we are like filthy rags, like something that is of no value. The only, obviously the God values us, not, not in a way that God doesn't value us. God obviously wants to be in relationship with us, but he's saying that our deeds and all the things that we try and do for him, he sees them like filthy rags, like an unclean thing. That means that there's a problem there because the only righteousness that matters to him is the righteousness that comes through faith the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. We can try all we want to try and please God to get to a place where we are right with God, but we can never get to that place as long as we we don't do it with Jesus. The only way we can get to a place where we are 100% righteous, 100% pleasing to God, is if we do it with Jesus. One of of the best statements I've heard from Joseph Prince, he says, Righteousness is not right doing. Righteousness is not right doing, but it is right standing with God as a result of right believing. If you believe right, you always live right. So we have been preached a gospel or a message that says, do the best that you can and God will be pleased with you. But that's not what pleases God. We know from Hebrews that it is impossible to please God without faith. Faith is faith in Jesus Christ is the only thing that pleases God because that is 
What he's saying is, I have put my everything in the perfect one, that is Jesus Christ. You only believe in him and you will have exactly the same account as him. That is the only thing that can please God. Faith in Jesus Christ. Now as, you, as we continue with our story from um, verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship, uh, worship the Father. Sorry about that. Um, worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak, I who speak to you am he. So at this particular point, Jesus reveals himself to the woman. Again, there was another opportunity to argue about where is the best place of worship. But Jesus didn't focus on that. Jesus again took back the attention from we need to be in Jerusalem or we need to be in this mountain. He took back the attention from that and he, he went back and he focused, refocused again on the same message that he, was, that he was talking about. He says those who worship him will worship in spirit and in truth. Now is the time where, where we worship doesn't even matter. So our worship, our true worship is not a matter of location. Previously, it used to be you have to go to this mountain, Zion. You have to be in Jerusalem facing the east. You have to go to this place. There are still so many religious practices that are there in the world that say you have to do or worship in a certain way or facing a certain way. But Christ is saying true worship is something that flows from the heart. It's no longer a, a case of I have to be in this location or I, I have to do this and that. I have to wear these clothes because they are holy. True worship comes from, first of all, the spirit that Jesus is introducing to this woman and in truth. And truth only comes through Jesus Christ because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I know when you, come, when you start talking about the subject of truth, it's a very, you know, how do you know it's the truth? The truth is constant. And I can always tell you from the world's perspective, there are so many definitions of what is good and what is bad. And I always find it funny that our definition of good and bad or our definition of truth from a worldly perspective changes with time. Why? Because if I look back 50 years from now or 100 years from now, well, 100 years back, sorry, 100 years back, and look at the people that lived in their time, in that time, I'll probably condemn them and say, but how could they have lived like this? And how could they have allowed this and that and that to happen? 
people who live 50 years, 100 years from now will probably look at our time and say, but how could these people have allowed such and such things to happen? Maybe because the laws of the land have changed over time that have now allowed certain things to happen, certain freedoms to occur. Does it mean that the fact that you're living in this time and you're going to be condemned 100 years from now means you're wrong? Because the definition is coming on the basis of I am living in my time, so that means only the people that live in our, in our time are the right ones. The ones that live before us are not. Is that it? How can our definition of right and wrong be based on that? Our definition of right and wrong has to be based purely on the truth that is Jesus Christ. That, why, that is why from the beginning, I know David Youngren was sharing this a couple of weeks back about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I always, like I said, I always find it fascinating that there were two trees in the Garden of Eden. One, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. I always wonder why this one was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I can understand God being good that he wouldn't want us to know what evil was. So I can understand from my mind if God had called it the tree of the knowledge of evil. But why is it that God didn't also want us to know what good was? Because like I just mentioned, our definition of good changes. So it's only one of two decisions. It's a decision between life or death. The moment we get sucked into, I am right, this is right, this is wrong. Like for example, let me give you a very good one. We, many people in this, in this place right now, I, I've, learned, I've, get, I've gotten to learn from a lot of my Africans, uh, brothers and sisters, to bry. <laughs> they love their meat. But if you were to speak to somebody right now, eating meat is wrong. So does it make all of us right here wrong? Just because they now have a preference for a specific thing, does it make everybody else who doesn't have the same opinion wrong? Because that is the human standard. The human standard will always focus on what you do and what you don't do. Christ on the other hand, focuses on the Father, the Spirit of God, because that is where truth comes from. The truth can never change. The truth is the constant. So, like I said, finally Jesus reveals himself to this woman. And I think as soon as Jesus said, I am the Messiah, that's when it clicked to that woman. She had discovered Jesus through a conversation which is interesting again that of all the conversations that Jesus had with the religious leaders with so many people this is one of the most detailed conversations we've had Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman of a reputable character you ask yourself why was that woman at the well at midday when in that culture women used to go and draw water from the well in the morning when it was cooler and they used to go in groups, maybe because she was ashamed. She saw herself ashamed. That's why she was alone at a weird hour of the day drawing water. 
because she couldn't stand being in front of other ladies because they would speak, to her, speak about her, maybe not in so many words, but even the eyes would just tell her, oh man, everybody's talking about me. And for good reason. She was a woman of, rep- uh, of, not, of not, not of a reputable character. We could tell from the story, from the conversation with Jesus. But those are exactly the people that Jesus was called to to seek and save the lost. So it doesn't matter really what your story is. As long as the moment you encounter Jesus, your story matters to him, but much more than that, it matters that you understand that he came to seek you, that you can be drawn back to the Father, that you can experience the Spirit of God in you back, that whatever it is that you've been seeking that is void of you, The moment you discover Jesus, you discover life, the living waters. And we can see by the ending of this story that in verse 28 and uh, 28 to 30, it says, Then the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the man, Come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Her questionable reputation became a basis of evangelism because she encountered Jesus. It didn't matter anymore to her that people knew her as a person who who is not of right standing, but she actually used the same story to go and say to people, come and see Jesus. Come and see a man that has told me everything about myself. She was no longer ashamed of who she was because of who she had encountered. So even if you have had a past that may have kept you away from people, that may have generated shame, that you no longer want to interact with people, you you, you no longer, you see yourself in, you're condemning yourself when you encounter Jesus, your story becomes your testimony. Because with Jesus, there is therefore no more condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Our stories get to be the point of which we get to minister to other people so that they too can experience living waters. They too can experience the Spirit of God in them. Again, we ask ourselves, how could, this, how could she have done that? Like, what made her, what, what gave her the courage to even go back to the city and minister the gospel? Jesus gave her the answer right at the beginning of the conversation. In verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of living water springing up into everlasting life. She encountered the living water and she drank from it. And guess what happened? She too became a fountain for other people to drink from. So the effect of discovering Jesus, like Etienne mentioned last week, is transformation. You can never be the same if you drink from Jesus, if you drink from the well of living water. 
The moment you drink from it, you are transformed you yourself to become the same fountain that others can drink from. That's why anyone who, who comes across the good news of Jesus Christ and gets impacted truly and changed can never keep their mouth shut and not share the same message with other people. She didn't need to go to ministry school to actually go start preaching. I mean, ministry is good. Ministry school is good because it will help you get a better understanding of who Christ is, who you are in Christ, what it is that you have inside of you, which is the Spirit of God. It's going to help you. But anyone, but the Spirit is enough for to to make us ministers and ambassadors of the same gospel that has changed our lives. The Spirit is enough. So in closing, I'm going to read from um, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2 to 6, which really just highlights the same message that I'm talking about, um, which is if you drink from the fountain, then you also become the fountain that others can drink from. So Isaiah 12 verse 2 to 6 from the message translation says, Yes, indeed, God is my salvation. I trust I won't be afraid. God, yes, God is my strength and my song, best of all, my salvation. Joyfully, you pull up the buckets of water from the wells of salvation. And as you do it, you say, Give thanks to God, call out his name, ask him anything, shout out to the nations, tell them what he has done, spread the news of his great reputation, sing praise songs to God, he's done it all, let the whole earth know what he's done, raise the roof, sing your hearts out, O Zion, the greatest lives among you, the holy of Israel. As we draw from the buckets of the wells of salvation, we can only but shout out with our hearts and lungs out that the world needs to hear the same message that we have drawn from. And that is the gospel, and that is what it is to discover Jesus. To discover Jesus means we are encountering a man that came simply because there was a problem. And the problem was we, we were void of the Spirit of God. We were just like filthy rags before him. All our righteousnesses were just like filthy rags to him. And there's nothing that we could do from a natural perspective that could bring us reconciliation with him. But guess what? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and become the sacrifice for all of us that by encountering Jesus, we get to have an opportunity, a route to the Father. And not only that, not only are our sins forgiven, the, the, wonderful the wonderful thing about the message of Jesus or the message of the gospel is, first of all, we are saved for eternity. So our eternity is guaranteed. As long as you've believed in Christ, you are guaranteed of eternity with Jesus. But there's more to it than just forgiveness of sins. Once you know that your, your sins are forgiven, that's why Jesus said, go and wait for the promise of the Spirit. Hebrews talks about all these heroes of faith, even Abraham, who is considered the father of faith, that even Abraham, being called a friend of God, 
the righteousness of God did not receive what we have, which is the promise. David, Abraham, all these people, you can name them up to the time of Jesus, they have a good report about how they lived lives, lives of faith, but they lacked one thing that we have, that is the Spirit of God. And guess what? Even the, time, even the, the disciples of Jesus, when Jesus walked with them, they still lacked the Spirit. That's why, it was, that's why it was necessary for Jesus to go so that the Spirit might come. Otherwise, if Jesus was already present in, in body, then Jesus could only be in one place. But with the Spirit poured on all of us, God is everywhere through us. God is everywhere through us. And this is the message that we bring that Discovering Jesus is about discovering the, the message of the gospel about how Jesus became a sacrifice for us and that we can get to spend eternity with Jesus. But more than that, now we have the Spirit of God inside of us. It's now a tag. I get the Spirit, I get to tag somebody else. And that's how the world will hear about the salvation that comes so I hope you are blessed this morning as we come to a close. Uh, maybe we can just all stand to our feet in this moment. And if you've never thought about this gospel, if you've never thought about what this message means to you, this is just, I'm just giving you an opportunity to, to come and, you know, just open up your heart and, just give it a thought and say, what does, this, what does discovering Jesus mean to me? If you've already received Christ, it's an opportunity for you to awaken to the spirit that is already inside of you. But if you've never said yes to Jesus, with all eyes closed, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. If you want to just, just like this woman, just know that Jesus knows everything about your story, everything about your life, what you've done, what you're ashamed of. He knows everything, but he's not condemning you. He, all he's just saying is, come to me and drink from me and drink from the well of salvation and you will never thirst again. With all eyes closed, if there's anyone just, that's, just wants to respond to this message, who has never done this before, this is, I'm just giving you an opportunity to just raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front, but just raise your hand so that I can know just who, who I'm praying with, that we can just respond to this message and allow the Spirit to just minister to us in this moment. Father, I just thank you for this family. I thank you for everything that you you've done for us through the cross. But above the cross, we thank you for your resurrection and now the resurrection life of Jesus Christ lives in us through the Holy Spirit. We thank you for this message that sets people free. A message that goes against all shame, all heartbreak, all condemnation, all guilt. A message that sets people free. This is the message that we preach, the message that we bring across that Jesus made a way for us 
and there's only one call he's asking you to just allow him to come into your heart and you can find more of our free teachings on our website www.gracelife.ca and if you're ever in the Tigerberg area we invite you to join us for one of our gatherings our aim is to help you discover Jesus find family and experience life to contact us or to find out where and when we meet visit our website www.gracelife.ca